As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Hello and welcome to The Last Jedi on the Left podcast. Uh, I am your host, Aaron, and for this episode, I'm joined again by Joe. Hello. Thanks for having me back. That's all right, yeah. So um, this one's a bit of a different episode. We, uh, sort of we, but I guess you really. I, I want to tra- take credit for it, but it was your idea, I think. Came up with the idea of um, basically with Bruce's uh, recent retirement announcement, we decided that we could go back and look over what, you know, what's been a, a pretty good run for him in the 1990s. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought for this episode then we could, uh, so we, we, we kind of took on the challenge of watching any ones that we'd missed. Yeah. Some obviously better known than others, I think. <laughs> but um, between sort of, yeah, going through them and then we can ha- kind of have a look at each one as we go through and decide probably if it belongs in like the top four of his 90s films, what I'm tentatively calling his Mount Rushmore of 90s films. Or if it's more like a green, kind of one of his better ones, amber, middling, obviously, and then the red ones are just... Avoid like the plague. Yeah, don't recommend watching them, basically. So, yeah, just to be clear then, so we're going four tiers. Matt Rushmore, green, which is recommended, yellow, which has got good points, and then red, which is, yeah, just avoid. We've wasted an evening watching it, so you don't have to. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, um... So I guess we'll we'll kick off then because uh, we we picked his 1990. So it feels a little arbitrary because obviously you've got before this he's kind of he's come to fame off the back of uh, Moonlighting the TV show, and then after that he's obviously John McClane in, yep. in Die Hard, and that kind of kickstarts his career properly. Um, so I don't think there's much else really in the 80s. I know he does Look Who's Talking which I guess we'll get to that in a minute Yep. shortly. <laughs> um, and he's got a very small role in The Verdict, which was about the only other film in there. I was like, oh, okay, I know that film. But he's like, he's extra almost in that. Yeah. Um, there's one, actually, you just made me think going back over the 1980s. There's one thing that I might not get a chance to shout out going forward, but he's in an episode of Miami Vice. Okay. And he's unreal in that episode. Um I don't recall what it what it was called, but it's like the seventh or eighth episode of the first season, and he plays the most vile POS possible, um, which is not a character he plays that often throughout his career. Um, so it's a really interesting little turn if you can dig it out. So yeah, that was another thing he made in the eighties. That was before Moonlighting. Okay, um, there we go yeah. then. But the nineties um, is the lift off, definitely. Yeah, that's it. So the nineteen nineties. The first one I've got on the list is Die Hard Two. Yep. Um, it's a, a, you know, I think it's it's kind of basically a rehash a little bit of Die Hard. Yeah. Um, in, in a way, it's very much a very similar film of like, he's wrong place, wrong time, which I guess they all are to a, some degree or another. But um, yeah, in particular, this one feels very close to that first film, which... I guess if you're going to like, if there's some uh, action film that you are going to crib off, might as well be pretty much one of the best ones ever. 
Yeah, exactly. I, what I like about Die Hard 2 is it's kind of knowing in all of those aspects as well. So you've got him walking through the whatever um, underground bunkering bit as, um, through the airport. He's going, you know, another elevator shaft, another da da da. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? You know, all that. Yeah. So it, it's knowing that it's basically retreading the same ground again. But um, I, I think it's really effective. I think it's actually my favourite sequel of all the diehards on reflection um we will come to another one later and i know that's probably the one that most people go for because it's also you know the the return of um the director from the original mctiernan yeah uh whereas this one's rennie harlin but i think he does a good fun um little retake on on mctiernan's stuff because it's so much more grounded in the original film and then harlin as he would is known to do, he just blows it all up. Um, literally, in some cases, in this <laughs> film as well. Um, but yeah, I, I really like it. It just takes that template and just works with it. Again, it's lacking in some areas. It doesn't have a villain as good as Alan Rickman and blah blah blah. But yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Die Hard too. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I guess we'll kind of get to it in a minute. Like you say, the what you're mentioning there with the. Um with the sequels and such. Yeah. I, I don't think many people are going to be picking four or five. No, no, I, I'm, I'm out by that point. I, I've watched them both. It took me a long time to watch five, actually, um, because I just was not a fan of four at all. I thought it lost. That's the one thing about the original trilogy. Um, obviously, McTiernan's there for two. Bruce is there for all three. But they all kind of cover different aspects. They're all in different locations. They've all got different villains and different motives behind those villains to an extent but they all feel cohesive and a whole as one. Whereas four just was the definition of like jumping the shark for me. Um, it was like a, a vain attempt to bring it into a modern, you know, world with all the technological villainry going on and everything like that. I just thought you, you've completely gone here. There's, there's a little creeping sense of that in the third one, but it's still pretty grounded. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I guess we'll get to it a little bit with the third one, but the third one does make departures, whereas it still felt like a diehard film yeah. for me. And then by four, it just felt like a Bruce Willis film. Yeah. There's just He's just different. Yeah. It's just a different McLean as well. So. so with that said, I feel like I know where you're probably going to go, but are we thinking green for this one? Definitely green. Yeah. yeah. Are, are we, did we say Mount Rushmore is four? Uh, yeah. So I yeah. figure what we could probably do is, because I feel like we're going to have at least more, a lot more than four greens. Yeah. So definitely. if we maybe just start with the greens, we can pick our Rushmore from them. So yeah. uh, first one in there then. Yeah. Is Solid green. Two. Next one I've got on my list, uh, and kind of like I say, we, I, I briefly touched on it before, is uh, Look Who's Talking 2. Yep. This is one I have not seen. Right. Didn't didn't want to put the, the the work in, if I'm honest, to watch uh, Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking Too for this podcast. <laughs> but I believe <laughs> you have fair. watched it, haven't you? So, Yeah, I, I looked at the list earlier of where we started because I know we discussed starting at 1990 and I thought that was interesting because we don't have to repeat ourselves about Die Hard for 10 minutes, even though I've just mentioned it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a shame that we've missed Look Who's Talking because that's actually quite a fun film. Um uh, we can talk about it with Look Who's Talking To because Look Who's Talking To has nothing really to talk about. Right. Um, it's just a, a retread but lacking, um, the complete opposite of Die Hard 2 actually, rather than like sort of 
taking that template again and and just nurturing it and and building another fun vehicle out of it it just misses all the same beats it feels rushed um i like the the first one's quite biting it's quite it's written by or directed by the same person who brought us fast times at Ridgemont high so okay. you can imagine that kind of um you know, sort of sexual innuendo and all that sort of stuff, dealing around this cutesy kind of talking baby thing. It was a little bit more biting than I expected it to be. But look who's talking to. It just feels like, yeah, the studio said, wow, that was a massive success. We've got everyone back together again. Let's do it all over again. Um, and like the routines that the child does in the first film are quite amusing because they look like they've been structured and set out and set pieced and Travolta will do something or Kirstie Alley will do something. And then there's a funny like offhand comment from Bruce Willis's little boy. Um, but in this, it just felt like they'd got Bruce Willis in just to do whatever he could over the top of whatever the child actor was doing at the time. So yeah, it just felt completely rushed and it's not as much fun. Um, right, yeah. Key characters don't turn up that were in the original, like some of the supporting characters that really helped it along. And um, yeah, the script is just like Travolta and Kirsty Alley kind of falling out with each other for most of it as well. So just a bit of a bummer um and i don't know how it made like 120 million or whatever it was at the the box office again and there was a third one after that which is apparently even worse but yeah i was out after two so. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, everything you've just said there absolutely screams um like sequel cashing grab you know 100 yeah they've done well i guess to get like you say get uh willis and get Amy Heckling back as well to direct it, Heckling, yeah. and um, and you know they've they've done well to get, to bring everybody back in, but they've just gone. Why don't we just make it more, basically, without really any of the same thought or care that goes into the first one? Yeah, exactly. And uh, Amy Heckling will be fine because she goes on to do Clueless anyway next. So, oh yeah, of course she does. Yeah, I did notice that as well. Yeah, so you can see that common thread, which suggests look who's talking is a bit more than just your kind of. Um, honey, I blew up the kid, or something like that. There's a little bit more to it. Um, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that film, by the way. But, um, but yeah, uh, look who's talking to is not recommendable. I wouldn't read it. Um, so, we're going, uh, we're going amber for it, then you reckon? Yeah, dark yellow. Um, it's not as offensive as, as some films might be <laughs> to your senses here, but uh, yeah, it's not, not highly recommended. Okay, so the next one, I think, and this is probably the first kind of interesting one i guess we've got on the list yeah. for me anyway is uh it's bonfire of the vanities so this one was brian de palma's 1990s kind of huge uh, announcement for the decade for the start in the decade one it's an adaptation of a tom wolf novel so mm-hmm. it's kind of big names all around it's uh it's tom hanks and melanie griffiths along with bruce and I probably like the general consensus on the film at the time was that it was a massive bomb and it didn't make any money. People didn't like it. What was going on? And for me, I feel like whilst I think that's kind of harsh, I also don't think it entirely worked for me. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I don't like for me, I, I'm a bit of an apologist for it. Um, just because of the general style. And I mean, it's not a massive department fan, um, fanboy, I guess. It wouldn't be in my top 10 department films, but yeah. he's always bringing a certain 
style. And when we say style, he is Mr. Style um, to the table. So it was his bomb. And I think that's kind of carried with it throughout, you know, Scorsese had one, Spielberg had one, Cimino had one. They've all had one. Um, And they've all come back from them mostly, except Cimino. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, this this was a bit of a, a a box office bomb. But I think it's it's sort of one of those that's now become sort of cult um, appreciated in certain corners. And it, it's all just because of everything that De Palma throws to it. I mean, he's coming off of like Casualties of War, Untouchables. It's like his most successful period. Yeah. Um, and he's got these two stars in in Willis and uh, Hanks, who I don't think he wanted originally i think um willis in particular was quite controversial because i think he was pushed onto de palma because of the success of die hard right okay i yeah. think de palma wanted um jack nicholson and nicholson for whatever reason couldn't make it or turned it down um so yeah willis wasn't the original fit but i think actually he comes away from it as probably the most interesting character in it as well and i think it's a good example of there's many of these films in this nineties period that aren't fully successful overall, but there's always something interesting he's doing in it as well. And I think that combined with, uh, De Palma's, you know, just flourishes all over the place. It is a pretty interesting film, but I think it's a, it's a yellow for me. Yeah. I think I probably agree with you. Um, it's an interesting point that you've raised about like, um, the, the, the cast in terms of not being what De Palma wanted, because I think it's just an incredibly miscast film. Um, yeah. especially that, the first scene that you get where it's got the, the kind of really good tracking shot, uh, yeah. steady cam or whatever that follows Bruce kind of through the bowels of this building and, and everything else from there. And he's kind of a bit drunk and he's a bit all over the place, but then he just turns on the charm. And when you mentioned Jack Nicholson, you can absolutely see Jack Nicholson doing that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, I kind of, and, and like you say, I, I do think that even though he's perhaps not going to be your first choice for this kind of film, He's still pretty good in it, yeah. Um, as opposed to Tom Hanks, who just I feel like he was just horrendously miscast and never quite gets past it. Really, maybe it's just the baggage of the rest of the nineties that we kind of bring with Hanks for uh, with this film. But the fact that he just doesn't ever seem slimy enough to be this character, yeah, because they're both as, as superstar actors. They're both they've both had similar. Um, requirements in their careers, so to speak, in that they, they, they're trying to elevate themselves beyond that just every man superstar status that they've got. And it's like, oh, it's Tom Hanks. Every every film's Tom Hanks. We always know it's Tom Hanks. Yeah. Is he, you know, the, 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 the most biting criticism of it is, is he ever really acting or is he just Tom Hanks in everything, you know, which is unfair because he's a brilliant actor. Um, and, and Willis is very similar in that it's always oh he's just a John McClane kind of guy but I think particularly with Willis he's he's definitely not always that he, he can disappear into a number of different sort of roles um, and I think the Bonfire of the Vanities was probably one of the first major projects that he was involved that suggested he was more than just the you know at that time he was like the Stallone or Schwarzenegger kind of suggestion or Van Damme, you know, but immediately after the success, he's gone to Look Who's Talking To, uh, sorry, Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking To and The Bonfire of the Vanities. So he's immediately trying to branch out, which is interesting. Yeah, that's um, an interesting point. So I've put that one down as amber as well. Um, 
So the next one up, I guess, kind of, I guess he's a little bit reverting to type then for him. Um, so it's Last Boy Scout. Kind of a, it's a film that I, I actually didn't get around to rewatching for the podcast, but I have seen it numerous times over the years. Um, Tony Scott, who uh, people obviously will know, he did, he did Top Gun and um, this kind of just, just comes in before True Romance, which we'd spoke about on the previous podcast. Um, so, yeah, this was uh, Bruce kind of absolutely nailing this bit of his uh, his fantastic Joe Hellenbach name, fantastically named character. Um, and he comes along with Damon Wayans, who is basically just doing Damon Wayans. But you, 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 know, you pick him, you know what you're getting with that kind of thing. I... Yeah kind of love this film for what it is absolutely <laughs> it's, it's tony scott 100 all the way but it's uh i'm definitely a fan of his so yeah I, I i love this film it's a green for me i don't know where we'll go with it but i think it's one of willis's most interesting action hero kind of types because he's pretty far from a hero for the most part in this film and, that's true and, it's again. It, this is a film that died with a vengeance. Sorry to keep bringing that film up, but takes the clone of this massively and goes, "Oh yeah, you remember when he was like, you know, that hungover, aggressive, take no shit kind of Joe Hallenbach? Actually, that's the John McClane we all want now. Um, and let's put him in a sort of a buddy cop role as well with a, a sidekick. Um, and it." You can't blame them because it works absolutely superbly with Last Boy Scout. A ridiculous storyline, ridiculous set pieces. It's Tony Scott, just, you know, Tony Scott in for all he's worth. But um, it's just absolutely riveting all the way through. I love it. Love between, it. Between the start of this film and the end of The Fan, <laughs> do you reckon Tony Scott has any idea what goes on on a sports pitch? No, I, I think I think he's probably watched one NFL game in his life and it's just gone through his sort of blinkered view. It must have been heavily rainy that day. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I don't know if anybody shot anybody on, on the on the field that day. Somebody but, uh... must have been brandishing a gun though for certain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean absolutely preposterous. But at least that was the opening scene, so you know what you you're going with. Um it was Shane Black as well, wasn't it, who, who wrote yes. it? Yeah, I think did, it's yeah. a butchered script. I'm throwing out some trivia, but I think it wasn't the original Shane Black script. I'm sure there's like a Shane Black version out there um, online or whatever, which is one of these fated screenplays, which is supposed to be you know one of the best unmade films ever made. But um, I think for what they did with it, it's pretty good. Pretty damn good. Yeah, I, I always kind of... Uh, I, and for a while, it felt like we were in that sort of space of... Shane Black does absolutely incredible screenplays because there was th the word around this original one, um, other ones like obviously um, Lethal Weapon yeah. and Lethal Weapon 2 as well, which a conversation for a different podcast, but I'd be interested to see which one people prefer on that one. Mm -hmm. But you also got like Long Kiss Goodnight uh, and films like yeah. that in there. Rennie again. Yeah. And then eventually he comes out with Iron Man 3 and The Predator. And I think the uh, the mask drops at that point, doesn't it? So, Did you ever watch his other one, though? Nice Guys. 
I haven't seen that one oh, okay. as, as of yet, but um, I've seen a lot of stuff online. I have people seem it, to like that one, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are like, "This is one of the, you know, action masterpieces of the last ten, fifteen years or whatever." Just like under the radar. I watched it once and I thought it was okay, but right, yeah. Maybe I missed something, but yeah, I, I, you know, Shane Black. He feels like a very 80s, early 90s kind of writer to me as well. And he just fits that kind of era perfectly. It's like he had his time there and then. Yeah, because all that stuff that we've kind of lost now for good reasons, you know, some of the, you know, kind of commentary in there and some of the language and things, you know, it's a, it's a time gone by. But I'm kind of, you know, it's, it's still fun to go back and sort of look at that through that kind of prism and see what the world was like then and the crazy stuff that they got away with. Um, and he's right front and center of that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know if he fits into this sort of modern world of, of action writing, but that I haven't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang either. So probably need to look into him a little bit more. We'll leave the jury out on the uh, Shane Black podcast. We've both seen that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next one, if we're saying that one was green, then I think we're both in agreement yeah. there. This one could be interesting. So the next one I've got is uh, 1991's Mortal Thoughts. Uh, so directed by Alan Rudolph, which I'll be honest, wasn't a name I was all that familiar with, but uh, he kind of will come up later on. Um, but this is a one with him and uh, Demi Moore, who she's probably more the actual star of it. He plays a sort of abusive, drunken, uh, drug dealing husband of her friend. And then it kind of has this sort of, I want to say it's like a pseudo sort of uh, Thelma and Louise side to it hmm. with like the, the revenge kind of subplot and women going on their own. But also it was out before Thelma and Louise, which I think is quite quite an interesting sort of tidbit in the history there. It's also got Harvey Keitel in it as well. Yeah. I didn't realize he was in it actually. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, I not heard of this one before, but then when I sat down to watch it, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, and it, yeah, it yeah. does go back as well to what you were saying before, where Bruce often doesn't play the smarmy arsehole, basically, but he is like full on in scumbag mode in this. So, yeah, one of the yeah. rare ones where he does it. But yeah, Bruce, this is Bruce, he could do it. This is the closest to that character I was talking about in uh, Miami Vice. Actually, he's probably yeah. even worse in Miami Vice. But um, yeah, it, it's a turn that. He always hints at in his character, I think. There's always something in there where you're like, you're even though you're a good guy that we're rooting for, you're still only one or two steps away from being really quite nasty. Like he's just got something in his face. It's 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 it's, it's intended. It's not like oh yeah, he's yeah. got one of them faces or something. He knows what he's doing. And he's got to do it when he's John McClane, for example. He's got to have that ability to like charm you. But at the same time, also, you know, stick an ice pick through a terrorist eye at any given moment or whatever, you know. So he always teeters on that and we'll come to it in later films where it's probably played to even better effect. I think here he's all over onto that one scale of just he's a scumbag in this. There's no nuance to it, but it, it works. Um, it's kind of like one of those sort of neo-noirs that were going around in the in the early 90s. So after the Coen brothers came out with Blood Simple and then you got... Carl Franklin's work like um, Devil in a Blue Dress or One False Move. It's of that kind of piece. Uh, but I was really 
uh, like pleasantly surprised by it because I, I kind of was half aware of it, but I'd never sat down and watched it. Um, and yeah, I thought I thought it worked really well. I, I don't know if it's just a surprise, the like the pleasant surprise. Go, oh, you know what? That wasn't too bad, and I, I wasn't really expecting much from it. Whether it does hold up under multiple viewings or whatever, I don't know. But definitely one of those sort of useful to throw out to people in the future when you go, oh, you like that kind of film? You should really try, you know, Mortal Thoughts because I think it's pretty good at what it does. Yeah, um, I think I'm pretty much in agreement with you on that one. It's um, it's got its moments for certain and. Like you say, kind of the example I was thinking of was it's that when you mentioned before that Bruce always kind of brings that edge to his characters a little bit. <clears throat> the thing is with with characters like John McClane and stuff like that, he will charm you, but also you can kind of see why his wife's left in between every film. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of thing to it. Yeah. Um, whereas he's, he's full on leaning into it in this. So um, it. I think we're probably going to be in agreement that it's going to be an amber. I feel like yeah, green would be a bit too favourable towards it. But yeah, if it, if it was made in like 1996 and we'd only got a couple of greens by that point, I'd probably be green in it. But I'm I'm aware that we're going to hit some more greens later. So yeah, it's a, a few it's more in there. Bright yeah. yellow, bright yellow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next one, and I can absolutely promise you, this is not going to be a green. <laughs> it is is Billy Bathgate. Um, a film again. I I wasn't even really aware of um, before it uh, before it came to doing this. Um, but it, realistically, it's a film with uh, with Dustin Hoffman, Nicole Kidman, Bruce Willis, Steve Buscemi, Stanley Tucci. It should be far far better than it is. Yeah, it's uh, it's Robert Benton. Who yeah. directed Dustin to, I think, an Academy Award? No, did he get one for Kramer versus Kramer? Meryl Streep certainly did. So yeah, I mean, it's got like high uh, caliber presence. Yeah, <laughs> for want of a better word. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this one. <laughs> it's, it's just it. It constantly feels like it. Uh, it's hinting at a better film. That it never quite gets around to making. Yeah, that the the better film is probably The Untouchables or something like that. That's out there somewhere. That instead we just we actually Bruce Willis is is sort of barely in this, and for that reason alone, I would put it into the red. Besides, yeah, I think besides the overall it. quality of the film. Sorry, it's it, it's big problem is its star. Yeah, and I don't mean to dig the guy out. He didn't have a I don't believe a wonderful career. Lauren Dean, um, but he's just. It's not his fault. You stick me in a film with Dustin Hoffman and Bruce Willis. I'm way out of my depth. It's you know most people are, especially Dustin Hoffman, who is it's on pretty good form here as well. Actually, I think he's the one shining light of the film. His Dutch Schultz is pretty um, mean as it as it as it should be, um, yeah. and he can he, you know he's got that ability to just turn it on like a light bulb. Um, but the guy opposite him in Lauren Dean as Billy is just incapable of like stepping up to it. And then it's not just Hoffman. You've got uh, Nicole Kidman's around him. Steve Buscemi's in there as well. You know, it's, it's a pretty stacked cast, but when you're using this unknown, relatively unknown actor at the time to sort of drive, it, it's just a bad, bad piece of casting. Um, and as yeah. you say, Bruce, Bruce isn't around too much 
Um, I think he lights it up a little bit when he's there, though, in fairness to him. But it's not enough to save the film. Definitely. And I think possibly even like the best scene in the film is like the, the opening scene where yeah. it's got kind of a, this bit of a two-hander between Hoffman and Willis. Uh, it's obviously there's some kind of history, but we kind of view it from uh, Lauren Dean's character's eyes of like he, he gets in there and, and watches the scene play out. Yeah. And at that point, I was like, oh, this might not be too bad, actually. But then it, it degrades pretty quickly. Definitely. Yeah. So agreement, I think, on that one. Yeah. First read of the year for the 90s. Yeah. We'll finish off this year with um, a fairly interesting one again in Hudson Hawk. Yeah. Obviously, this is the one that kind of he brings to it a lot of uh, his own background, effectively. Um, he's, he's involved a lot behind the camera as well as in front of it. He's wearing a hat throughout it that I don't think ever suited him. Not really sure why he didn't decide to make that decision, but it's bizarre. But he plays these, uh, it's him and Danny Aiello as these two uh, thieves, effectively, who sing while they rob places. Sort of the conceit of it. Yeah. It's funny, I didn't actually know he was that involved. Is he a producer on it? Uh, I believe so, let me just... yeah. I mean, that makes sense with the singing now. I'd never even put those two and two together, but yeah, should have known that he'd try and get his uh, music career back going at the height of his fame. Yes, yeah, that's it. Bruno, or whatever he called himself. So he starred and also wrote the story and the theme song. All right. So yeah, he he was kind of heavily involved in this. was like his big... And again, it was a kind of another big flop at the time a lot of people kind of hated it i don't think it's that bad like i'm kind of very similar to how i was on bonfire the vanities with it probably slightly better than vanities i think for me just because it's enjoying itself a little bit more um yeah it's yeah it's probably more um easy going than bonfire of the vanities Um, yeah you can just sort of sit back and just absorb it all it's um i forget the director's name layman uh, yeah, Michael Lehman. Who did Heathers yes. before that. He got another film in between, I think. But, I mean, I, I love Heathers. I think Heathers is like, if you just said, watch this film, is this guy going to go somewhere? I would have gone, yeah, absolutely. This is a new major talent. Uh, I don't think he ever really got there with it. And I think Hudson Hawk probably played a pretty big part in that. with Because you can have a disaster like De Palma, yeah. but it's when it, comes in your career a little bit um yeah I, I, I don't think again it's not one of those films that's befitting of the um notorious bomb kind of um tone that comes with it you know it's it's, it's fine it it reminds me a bit of like the lesser cohen work cohen brothers yeah. work without the kind of um it's got the humour, but without the um, intelligence a little bit behind it, the kind of knowing intelligence. Uh, so, yeah, um, I, I'd only watch it once, I've got to be honest. Yeah, okay. I think that's fair. Um, where, where where would you lean on putting this then? Mm, it's close to red for me. But if you're more in the yellow camp, I'm I think willing I'm, to go yellow. Given the fact that we've put vanities in, in yellow, I think I'd have to, uh, I'd have to put that in the same category, just because I think I enjoyed it a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's fair. But yeah. uh, it's not a strong 
no. red for me or anything like that. No, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's not yeah. a strong, uh, strong amber. You know, it's, it's definitely mm. on the the red side of it. I think. Yeah. So uh, the next one I've got, well, the next one I've got actually is it's only a cameo for him uh, where he plays himself in the player. Oh. Um, not a lot to say on this one. I, I wasn't really going to include it, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, I don't, don't think we'll include it. If we did, it's probably the best film he's ever in. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> I mean, the player, the player's an incredible film. But uh, he is in it for a blink, and you'll miss yeah, it. Pretty it's, much, it's a hilarious cameo. To be fair, <laughs> it is really good. Um, so the next one after that is uh, 1992's Death Becomes Her is a Zemeckis film, very, very Robert Zemeckis, basically about uh, a kind of, he kind of plays an arsehole in it, in a way, but a completely different kind of arsehole to the one he plays in Mortal Thoughts. Yeah. So in this one, he's kind of, he, let me get this right, he is engaged to Goldie Hawn at the start, but secretly Lusting after Meryl Streep, yeah. But then, One life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, uh, throughout the film, those roles flip about two or three times, basically. And it's these two women, kind of half fighting over their careers, but also half fighting over a very dressed down looking Bruce Willis as well. Like it's not even like he doesn't look like John McClane in it, where you kind of go, "Well, I can sort of see what they're after there." He's got this shitty little moustache and these glasses that don't He's suit got him a pension for that, hasn't he, over his career, sticking on a dodgy moustache every time. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. And, um, and kind of an odd film, but yet really quite enjoyable. I thought it was quite good, really. Some of the effects that are used in it are really good. I think they were quite groundbreaking for the time, especially. Um, and it, I think it helps from being like peak Zemeckis. Like if Zemeckis made that film now, you probably wouldn't touch it with yeah. a ten foot pole. But um, it's kind of comes is what is it going to be? Just after the Back to the Future films, but just before Forrest Gump and stuff like that. So it's it's right in his uh, mm, yeah, yeah in his moment. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that actually. Yeah, but it's probably just after he's finished Back to the Future three, isn't it? And just before Forrest Gump. So yeah, yeah, peak peak um, Zemeckis. I, I, I enjoyed it. I've I got to be honest, when it, it was a first time watch again for me. Um, it was never a film that like majorly appealed to me because I thought the moment might have passed for my enjoyment. You know, if it had caught it when I was a kid, yeah, and I was about eight or nine, it would probably be one of my favourite films. But um, yeah, it just never really... But then that's why this exercise is quite good because you go over these sort of films that you wouldn't necessarily visit usually. Um, but yeah, so... I, sorted out, watched it, and for the first half an hour, I thought, this is an absolute car crash of a film. <laughs> this is just horrendous. Where's this going? You know, like, by the time we got to Fat Suit Goldie Horn, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, oh, my God, where, where are we going here? This is just terribly outdated. Um, Meryl Streep was oddly kind of playing down to it, like yeah, really definitely. playing down to it. Goldie Horn, as I say, in a fat suit. Bruce Willis donning all sorts of, you know, trying to dress him down as much as possible to make him not look like an action star. Isabella Rossellini turning up in nothing. Very little, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was like, where is this going? And then it kicks in, 
and it would be around about the half hour mark and then Meryl Streep takes over and she's just an absolute just hilarious turn from a um and Goldie and uh, Bruce to a lesser extent but yeah I ended up really enjoying it I think that the last 30 40 minutes as well are definitely where it's it's up to full speed by that point you know it's sprinting for the finish line kind of thing yeah, um, yeah. I think the magic potion works. It's magic. Yes, <laughs> once one, we get to that point, really kind of into it. Yeah, you you, yeah. you kind of away and running. So it's a funny one because it's probably almost like the 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 weakest of Zemeckis's films around that time, I reckon. Mm. But yeah, I still think it's it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I feel I like I'm possibly going to go where I'm going to go with this. I'm going to go Amber. I reckon. Yeah, I would have said Amber, but I would have probably conceded a green if you'd have been heavily in favour of it. But if you're kind of halfway down the road with it, I'd say Amber as well. Yeah, just, you know, we might come back to that one maybe. Yeah. I reckon I could push it up to green maybe, but um, it's it's the opposite end of the spectrum of green from, from as a Amber, sorry, from uh, Hudson Hawk, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So... The next one we've got is, again, it's a very small role, uncredited, I believe, but he's in uh, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. Again, as, amazing cameo. John, John McClane. Not, again, I'm not going to include this because it's just a small thing, but thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, no, I, I sat through the entire film, which is okay. Um, Emilio Estevez is pretty good fun in it, and uh, early turn from Sam Jackson. Um but yeah, just check out the John McClane clip in on YouTube or whatever. Um, it's the funniest thing in the film. So yeah, I don't recommend the whole film, but yeah. He, he's... It's all right for that one bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the next one for the actual uh, the actual list is uh, Striking Distance. This yeah. one is, well, he plays a character called Tom Hardy, which I feel like we've just got to mention straight off the bat. I know, I know. Um, just... Obviously, that wasn't a thing back then, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, so it's directed by Rowdy Harrington, who's come off Roadhouse and yeah. not a lot else, basically in his career. I think this one got quite a lot of stick, but I thought it was quite enjoyable. It's um, it's leaning into it a little bit. There's this sort of quite a bizarre um, familial police sort of storyline going on in there that it definitely feels like it was probably two or three scripts kind of mashed into one because he spends yeah. half his time as a river policeman um but it's got some some interesting kind of the, the the cast list is pretty good again you've got uh Sarah Jessica Parker is the the female lead in it and again uh, anybody who sort of spoke to me knows that 1993 Sarah Jessica Parker is <laughs> between this and the witches uh, sorry, not uh, Hocus Pocus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Worth the price of admission alone. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you've also got, moving on swiftly, we've also got uh, Dennis Farina, uh, Tom Sizemore doing absolute Tom Sizemore things. Uh, John Mahoney, who people probably know from as the dad from Frasier as well, and Andre Brower from a very early Andre Brower role. You've also got Tom Atkins, uh, anybody who's... <laughs> yeah, anybody who's a fan of uh, of eighties horror films knows all about Tom Atkins. So yeah, I think it's a really good kind of cast list. The, the film itself is the the plot is fine. There's an absolutely ridiculous uh, set piece right at the beginning with uh, 
Willis and Mahoney, who plays his dad in it, sort of trying to drive to this policeman's ball or something, but they're driving. It's like they're just having a casual conversation in the car, but it cuts to the outside of the car and they're driving on the wrong side of the road and swerving. It's just All ridiculous. It's absolutely <laughs> yeah. like, like the most 90s thing you can imagine as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I thought it was a, just basically solidly amber, like slap bang in the middle. Yeah. It could do a lot worse, but it's you're never going to rewatch it kind of film. It's, it's another film that um, fits my theory on uh, if it's made between 1991 and 1997 and it stars Tom Sizemore, you're going to have a good time one way or another. You know, whether it's Point Break or Passenger 57, Striking Distance, Heat, etc., etc. Like, they're all of varying quality, don't get me wrong, but it's fine. You're going to have a good time. I do think with Willis, if we turn the attention to him and this film, I think people think he's got eight or nine of these films. And he probably has, like, post the 2000 mark because, you know, where it goes. But I think at his peak, he actually doesn't have that many films like this, which are just straight-ahead clones of Die Hard with sort of secondary kind of level directors um, who are, as you mentioned, pulling in a great cast, you know, brilliant that guys and, you know, Atkins and Farina and people like that size more. But I, I think he actually learned from this when it wasn't, I thought, I mean, I think it did all right, but it wasn't, didn't get great critical notices. He, he makes straight ahead action films going forward, but they're always with more notable directors. Not sort of like, you you know, your major auteur directors or anything like that, but he doesn't really go into the Rowdy Harrington camp again um, at his peak. It's all Luke Besson's and, you know, Walter Hills and you know, yeah. Michael Caton Jones, Michael Bayes, all these people who've done notable stuff in the past. So it is what it is. And uh, it is the most, like, typical Bruce Willis actioner I think he made. And you could have put your Chuck Norris's or your whatever in it and it wouldn't have made that much difference. But yeah, I don't think he elevates it. I don't think it's any worse for having him in or anything like that. It's just uh, stick it on, turn your brain off. It's fine. Yellow. Yeah. <laughs> Amber. I right, keep I saying yellow. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. I, I, part of me does wonder if they got in, like say Farina and Sizemore and everybody else like that by just sort of going up to them and going, right, we're gonna, we've got Bruce. We're going to do Die Hard, but this time he's on a boat. Yeah. And it feels like they were like, okay, yeah, cool, sign me up. And it doesn't, actually, never quite delivers on that promise, but uh, it's it's solid enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, So after that, we're moving on to, I think, what has to be the most polarizing year on this list. Yeah, this is a mad year. (laughs) Um, So like, not to bury the lead on this one, we're going to start off with easily the best one of the, the lot. Yeah. And it's North. color of no yeah. <laughs> went for the same joke. <laughs> yeah. Pulp fiction. Yes. Uh I I mean, I haven't got a lot to say on this that I almost certainly won't repeat on about ten different other podcasts. But uh it's just brilliant. He doesn't have to be front and center like he is with most of his films, or at least most of his better films, but also leaves an absolutely indelible mark on it and has one of the best lines in 
at least 90s cinema, if not cinema full stop. Zed's dead, baby. Yeah. So (laughs) this is about as green as it's going to get, I think. Yeah, it's early contender for the for the four. Yeah, surely. Um, I watched a clip of an interview with Quentin Tarantino, and I I think this was quite nice that Willis was one of those guys who saw Reservoir Dogs and sought out Quentin Tarantino. I'm sure he's not alone. I'm sure a bunch of people did, but it doesn't always happen where an independent filmmaker comes out. Reservoir Dogs wasn't a massive rave success. It got great critical notices on the independent circuit, but it wasn't, you know, Citizen Kane or anything when it came out. Um, But he apparently, you know, caught wind of it and said, I want to be in whatever you've got lined up. And I think he read Pulp Fiction and he wanted Travolta's character. Right. uh, Vega. And, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, as he does, said no. <laughs> You're not having that. That's written for so uh, John Travolta. Um, but yeah, so he worked his way into the Bruce character, and it's like it's almost as if he was born to play it. You know, it is just, and he does so many. Like my hot take on Pulp Fiction in regards to Bruce Willis was going to be that he's in, he's sensational in it, but I don't actually love all the bits with him in it. Right. Yeah. But I still love them. But it's, you know, you've got the bit with the flirtatious taxi driver. You've got the bit with the girlfriend and the pot belly. You've got the bit with the gimp. Um, they're not all my favourite bits of Pulp Fiction, to be honest. But he's extraordinary in all of them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and the, I think yeah. I possibly disagree with the bit with the gimp. I think that's a standout moment for me. It, it's and possibly it, yeah, it's again because of the age I watched it being like, what is a gimp? And my dad being like, well, that's a conversation I'm not having with you right now. Yeah. But there yeah. you go. Um, yeah. So if, if that's about as green as it gets, we'll mm. move on to, uh, to which one do we go with? We'll go with North. Because I didn't, I didn't even watch North. I'm not going to lie to you. I saw that his character was credited as narrator. And I was like, if he's not even going to be in it, Oh, apparently, apparently he is. <laughs> You've told me. Yeah. But uh, I'll, I'll let you have five minutes on North if you want. I just, uh, I don't, I, I'll tell you what, the best way to sum up North is that Roger Ebert, um, famed American film critic for going on four decades, he wrote for the Chicago Sun-Times and he had a sneak preview show with um, Gene Siskel for years. Anybody listening who doesn't know who Roger Ebert is. Um, but he also published a bunch of his works, which were basically um, all of his reviews, um, you know, sort of compiled into one book. And one of the books he did was called I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. And that was obviously a compilation of all of his most scathing reviews about the worst films he felt he'd ever seen. And I hated, hated, hated this movie was a phrase he coined in the review of North. So (laughs) not only does it feature in that book, it gave that book its title. That's how bad that film is. (laughs) I mean, uh, when you've got nothing else to say, you might as well revert back back to Roger, I guess, on these things. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I could say stuff, but I don't really want to go into like fits of... uh, anger and swearing but yeah i i i agree with roger i hated this film elijah wood's character is this obnoxious little kid 
who decides that because his parents aren't showing him enough attention that he's going to go around the world and find better parents. And then that's obnoxious enough and bad enough. But then it's just a, a barrage of stereotypes and ill-judged comedy and outdated jokes and just crap. It is absolutely awful. My toes curled a little bit in your description of the plot, to be honest. So yeah, uh, yeah. it's a decent enough cast as well, looking through it. John Lovitz, Jason Alexander, Alan Arkin, Dan Aykroyd, Kathy Bates. You know, there's there's some decent people in there, but they all just turn up and, and skits. Oh, and is that what it is? It's just embarrassing. I mean the Kathy Bates and Dan Aykroyd bit, they're Oh, yeah, it's just it's, uh, <laughs> it's just so bad. <laughs> and it's Rob Reiner as well, which, like, I don't know, I think man, it killed he, his career. I he, think it genuinely did. He's such a polarizing filmmaker because he's made some absolutely brilliant films, Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, you know, and then he's also made just some bizarre choices. Yeah. Um, so we'll, 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 are you sure you don't want to put that one on Amber then? Are you... <laughs> Can we have like a just black depths <laughs> of darkness and put that one in? Just reserve a special place in hell for that film. The, the bottom section, whatever the opposite of the Rushmore is, this is where it's exactly, going. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The rubble at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the next one, and perhaps further proof that, I don't know, Willis had to pay some kind of massive toll to get into Pulp Fiction, but uh, the next one we've got is Color of Night. Oh God! <laughs> this was like the last one I think I watched as well before we before we started to do the podcast and stuff. Did and... you almost call the whole thing off? <laughs> <laughs> Tempted, uh, just about halfway through that, I was just now. Nah, let's not let's not bother. Um, it's it's a really odd film. Um, he plays a psychiatrist whose patient jumps out the window at the start, basically. And there's like a really interesting sort of 10 minutes there at the start where you go, well, this film's a bit weird, but at least it looks good. And then that just, again, that gets abandoned pretty quickly. And he has these weird, so he goes out to the West Coast and takes over uh, Scott Bakula's sort of group, I guess. And he's just... it deals with mental illness about as well as you'd expect a film that came out in 1994 to really in a way. And it, it, so that doesn't help. There's also like really just bizarre acting choices by literally everybody in it. Um, and also Max, one of the little, uh, little tidbits I found about this is that Max invoted it for having the best ever sex scene in a film. Uh, which I believe director Richard Rush kept hold of that award and had it in his bathroom till he died. Um, Amazing. <laughs> but it also led me to believe that maybe Maxim have seen like three films ever. None of them were sexy. <laughs> yeah, <this> one. <laughs> yeah. one of them was Billy Bathgate. The other <laughs> yeah. one was North. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to this one. Um. I think you summed it up pretty well. I believe it um, did nearly kill director Richard Rush as well in some kind of argument over the cut of the film, which the producers right. wanted to have a shorter cut. He wanted to have like his full two hours 20 cut. Quite frankly, I do not think it really matters. No, it was one of them. It was a first time watch for me. I watched it 
like last month or something. And it was always a film that appealed to me because I thought it was going to be the darker. Big, big Maxim of... reader that you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was waiting, <laughs> ready for that. Um, yeah, no, it was like, oh, this is going to be that kind of film that I always want to see Bruce Willis in, which is that darker, more sinister. And it's none of that. It's just, it's quite laughable. Um, you've got that whole opening segment with the, the death of one of his patients. And then do you remember the bit that he can't see the colour red? Yeah, well, yeah. Is what, that what did that play into in the end? <laughs> it's just like that's know. a perfect example. That gives the film its title, even though night yeah. is black and not red, but yeah, it, it color whatever. And then it has no nothing to do with the plot really. Um, and the the other bit is not to ruin it for anyone, but when you when he walks into the psychiatry session with the group, and there's a one very obviously not that person yes. person yeah, in the clearly. room yeah and you're like oh okay well they're in in on it then aren't they <laughs> like immediately i mean just... yeah I, i'll be honest i didn't i don't think i twigged immediately that i was like oh well this person's i was like the entire time i was going what on earth is that person yeah. doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just so yeah. like I, they couldn't have been more out of place if they'd come in in a full clown costume and just sat yeah. there and played it straight like absolutely just bizarre shocking. just <laughs> so weird Lance um, Henriksen, Henriksen's in it, and I forgot he was in it. <laughs> like that's how much nonsense <laughs> going on. I'd forgotten until you just mentioned it again. Yeah, I can't be honest as well. Uh, Ruben Blades is in it, and oh my god, I think he's <laughs> he's a pretty good actor. I've seen him a few other things. You know, I quite like him, so I knew it was a one-off for him here. But he plays this cop, and he's just constantly shouting at people and just making complete nonsense. So at one point, when uh, this girl comes to visit. Bruce Willis's character and she says hi it's me from the fender bender and Ruben Blades' character is there at the time and he's just leaving the, the policeman and he's like oh she looks looks a little bit young to be fending benders and I was like Jeez. did he mean to do that or was that in the script or what the fuck basically he, he does look like he's picked up the worst script in he ever ever created and thought that it's like 12 angry men or something like he he's acting as if he's got like gold dust in his palm, and you're just like, mate, this every single line of dialogue you're delivering is absolutely shocking. It's just yeah, unhinged, horrendous, horrendous. And also, he seems to be like properly leaning into this uh, Latin accent that mm. he's got, which I think he he has got a bit of an accent from like things that I've seen him in before. But it's not like he's playing this very stereotypical sort of Mexican character. And it's just, it's just bizarre. I don't want to spend any more time on it. It's shit. Don't watch it. Um, <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> so the last one in the year, which. What color is it by the way? Oh, it was, it was pretty fittingly. Red. Yeah. It was red. It was red. Yeah. You well, can't I mean, see was... the color Bruce, but you've achieved it. <laughs> I don't, he wouldn't have had a clue, but it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one, which promised to be a little bit more interesting, but I feel like it was a bit of a letdown personally. Uh, it's nobody's fool. Uh, reteaming with Robert Benton again of yep. uh, Billy Beck infamy, I guess. And it's it's basically, this is a it's a Paul Newman film where Bruce Willis effectively just plays a pain in his ass throughout the entire film. Uh, Melanie Griffiths is back again. Yep. But but nobody really does anything in this. I, I was quite bored, to be honest, watching it. I, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I, I, I didn't either. 
I, I, I imagine that somebody listening to this will be screaming at us now because I know that in some quarters this is like really highly revered, but I just don't get it. I don't know if you needed to be around at the time, but again, it was another one that passed me by and I watched it first time this time and I was just bored. <laughs> it feels like people kind of like it because it's like one of the last Paul Newman moments. Yeah. I suppose if you've been following Newman throughout. Yeah. Um, it's just the next extension of like Colour of Money. Now he's older again. He's not quite as charming. Well, he's charming, but he's he's just kind of, I don't know. He's just a, he's even a difficult character, even like explain. He just exists. That's the whole film though, isn't it? Like, yeah, we're not quite sure what the point is really. If you'd been on channel five at three thirty in the afternoon and didn't have Paul Newman in and didn't have Bruce Willis, but it had unknown actors doing exactly the same thing of the same quality. You'd just go, yeah, this is yeah perfectly fine. Channel five, three thirty in the afternoon movie. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's deserving of a rewatch, maybe. I'd, it was one of the ones I'd watched late, later on in this sort of binge. So maybe I was getting a little bit, you know, bruised out. But no, he's not even in it that much to be bruised out on either, really. No, that's it. So I think we're, we're both pretty much in agreement this is going to be a red as well. Yeah. I'm ready. So uh, we'll move on. We've got 1995 now. Um, so start off with Die Out of the Vengeance. He's back in familiar Indeed. shoes. Uh, there's no Al Powell. It's not Christmas, but we've uh, we've still got Johnny's in it. He's in the what is it? The third city as well by this point. Starts off with yeah, LA. Yeah. After that, it's Washington, Washington. and then now yeah. we're in the the Big Apple with uh, with Jesus himself, Samuel Jackson. Yeah, <laughs> my name's Zeus. <laughs> Don't look Hispanic yes. to you. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, I really enjoy this one. I think it probably is my favorite of the Switch sequels. I say that without doing a rewatch of them because I didn't really need to. Um, so you, you you could probably convince me that two was better, but equally I sit here without that convincing, saying that I think with a vengeance is probably my favourite. So for me, I don't know if you've got much to much to add on this one. No it's got enough elements to it that um imply that it's the second best one. You know, it's McTiernan again, Samuel L. Jackson's around. Um it's uh revisiting the storyline of the previous villain. Yeah. Um, not to ruin it for anyone. But yeah. I just, I think, my we, can, I think thing, we can, it's nearly 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, true, true. But it was based on a other script, wasn't it? Called Simon Says. Yeah. And then it was transplanted to a diehard once everybody involved was interested in revisiting it. And I think the Simon Says elements of it are actually the best things in the film. That's the cleverest stuff. And shoehorning in the um, connection to the first film, that's fine. I do think it's the first one that jumps the shark, though, because I only have to present Exhibit A, the underwater pipeline, when he jumps on top of the truck. Yeah. And yeah, all shit like that. I'm just like, I appreciate there's bits in it, all of those films, like when he jumps off the top of the Nakatomi Plaza with um, a hose pipe wrapped around his <laughs> Stomach, it's perfectly you know, reasonable. I, I get it, <laughs> but yeah, that, it was a little bit where I'm like, I'm getting taken out of this now. But there's elements of it that I, I really do like. 
and I, I've watched it more times than I could tell you, so it ain't all that bad. Are you greening? I think or... I want to green it, just because when I first watched it, it sent me into an obsession, not only with Simon Says, but also with one bloke with 12 cats going to St. Ives and, and everything else that was going on with that yeah. bit. So, yeah. So yeah, that, plus all that say, stuff is cool. I still haven't worked out that water. Um, <laughs> the, the riddle. Yeah. The two bottles, uh, yeah. the two litres into five. Yeah, it just blows my mind. I'm sure I, I could have. If, I sat, if I sat down with a pen and paper, I'm sure I'd be fine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but Maybe that's that. one for the next pod. Yeah. <laughs> so then after that one, we move on. So we've got, it's another sort of uncredited cameo type thing. Uh, this one's Four Rooms which is yep. sort of a compilation of four different segments from four different directors. He's in what I think is easily the best one of the four, which is Quentin Tarantino's one, which comes no shock to anyone who knows me. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's a very small scene. There's not a lot to say, really. It's not going on the list, but um, I, I really enjoy it. I think he's, he's really good in it. I totally want to be in that room just for one night. Minus the finger cutting. Yeah, without without <laughs> playing their game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like just to be in the penthouse with uh, Bruce Willis and Quentin Tarantino and... Uh, Paul Calderon. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I totally want to be in that room. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's the best. A lot of people like the Rodriguez segment with Antonio Banderas. It's fine. It's yeah. very. I think that kind of leads a little bit to where Rodriguez goes at times with like the Spy Kids stuff. I think, yeah, definitely. Kids, yeah. kids and and that kind of thing. But um, I was always quite. I think the first one's pretty bad. Yeah, the with witches. Madonna and yeah, the witches. Jesus, yeah. But um, I was quite like the the second one, which is the one with uh, what's his name, Richie from the the Sopranos in it. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He plays yeah. basically plays Richie from The Sopranos again. But, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was that was interesting. But like I say, easily the best bit is Quentin, Bruce, and Tim Roth coming in. Yeah, with his cigarette lighter, uh, cigarette. Sorry, with his cigar cutter. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> um, moving on, we've got Twelve Monkeys. Um, it's a. Uh, it's mid nineties sci-fi. Uh, it's Terry Gilliam, so it's off kilter for for sure. Brad Pitt's in it. Madeline Stowe's in it. Christopher Plummer. I think it's it's a pretty pretty brilliant film. Um, it's definitely got its detractors out there, and I don't think it's his best for the decade by far. But mm. pretty solidly, pretty solidly green for me. This one, I think. Yeah, I, this this is his second best of the decade for me. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think so, I think this film's an absolute masterpiece. It's perhaps one. I think I've only ever seen it once or twice, so maybe it's one that I do need to kind of get back to. I guess, but um, it is one that rewards uh, repeat viewings. Yeah, because it's like that whole complete whole. I know I won't go into detail on on here um, because it should be watched, but. Yeah, you just start noticing the little strands throughout. It's kind of as Madeline Stowe's characters kind of piecing it together. But then there's this other mystery element of what we've seen in sort of a flashback kind of thing at the start. And it's one of them perfectly formed sort of scripts, which just is like circular. 
and that's what like certain great sci-fis just get that perfect you know you get into this like kind of paradox where if this happens and this has to happen again and it's just it's so well conceived i think that film's incredible that's interesting because it it does have that fully like circle plot kind of thing that you mentioned so if it does reward the the rewatches and stuff then you know that that's pretty flawless in that it's execution of that so um yeah yeah he's a genius gillian we'll, we'll put it down as green shall we yeah <laughs> so after that we move into 1996 where he has last man standing this was the first one i watched of these uh on this sort of latest rewatch directed by um walter hill who kind of a, quite a famous one. He did one of my favourite films as well in The Warriors. Mm. So it it's, you know, someone with a pedigree. But for me, uh, th- th- so this one effectively is like a reworking of Fistful of Dollars or even Yojimbo or anything like that. Um, I just kind of felt it, it didn't fully come off for me. Um the yeah. the cast again is is kind of brilliant. So you got Bruce Dern, uh, Christopher Walken comes in it briefly. Dave uh, David Patrick Kelly, people know from Twin Peaks. Michael Imperioli, obviously Chrissy from The Sopranos. He's a very early role for him in it. And even I quite like seeing uh, Ken Jenkins, who people know well as Kelso from the Scrubs in it. A completely different character, but it's just one of them that you don't see him very often. So when it does pop up, you're like, oh, it's that guy. But yeah, who's the guy who's the Hasidic Hasidic Jew in um, Sopranos as well? He's in it. Oh, um, you know, the one where Hesh tells them how they can. Uh, yes, get the get. <laughs> He's in it as well. Uh, I can't remember his name, but yeah, no, I'm drawing a blank as well now. Him. But um, so yeah, despite that, it just never really came off. Me, I think it's Bruce doing. Absolutely great Bruce things in this, though. Yeah, it's just all style. I mean, you, you mentioned Waterhill making one of your favourites. He made two of my favourites. He made The Driver and um, Southern Comfort. Amazing films. But, like, by the time he gets to things like another 48 hours, I'd, I'd completely tapped out by that point. And he's, he's really going for style, and he's getting, like, Bruce to play, like, this cool dude who's you know wanders into or drives literally drives into the uh town yeah and immediately causes trouble for himself and all that but it just never really works for me i'd love to know what kurosawa thought of it because there's that great quote with kurosawa and he uh he contacted sergio leone and said um that fistful of dollars that's a wonderful film it's my film i dread to think what he'd think of this one but uh yeah it does make you wonder and like i say it kind of reinforces that that it's such a bold choice to do this film when you know that this story's already been done like in two of the greatest i mean yeah it's even done pretty well basically in uh in django as well the original mm-hmm. django uh similar mm-hmm. sort of very similar sort of story in that one so yeah just to, to try and do it again it's, it's just wild i know again this one i feel like has got quite a lot of uh fans out there but just felt very hollow for me yeah. Where uh, where do you sit on this one though? I'm close to red personally. Okay. But again again, if if it if you were to say yellow, 
I don't have any strong feelings either way. I, I just, I've never warmed to it. I think I'm just kind of looking into the films that I've got in yellow and the films that I've got in red, and I definitely think it's closer to the red ones than it is the the, yeah. the yellow. So, bin it red. <laughs> Let's be brilliant. that one's gone. Right, cool. Next one is another sort of smaller one. Um, I think, again, I didn't watch this one. So Beavis and Butthead do America. He does a voice role in that as Muddy Grimes. Did you rewatch that for this or watch that? I did. I, I wondered if, I didn't know where you'd fall down with the Beavis and Butthead, whether you'd be a big fan, watched them all, and you'd definitely seen this 50 times or... Kind of passed me by as a thing. I never really watched it or anything, so... I, I'm not a fan. I, I'm coming to it far too late. I caught a few of them back in the day, but the thing about the film is it's... Trying to think of something that's even similar to it. I suppose it's like taking a thirty-minute comedy series and you know expanding on it for films. It's never really a great idea. But with Beavis and Butthead, it's like it's actually like ten-minute segments on MTV. Yeah, and it's mainly spliced over like music videos and stuff like that. And it works in that essence to a, to a degree. You don't want to watch too many of them. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's okay. The Muddy Grimes character's kind of amusing. Um, it's just, yeah, kind of stoner, stupid comedy. And then it's got Bruce as Muddy and Demi Moore right, as yeah. the wife, I think that's right. Um, and they're kind of tasking Beavis and Butthead to do certain things and they're just getting it completely wrong. And, yeah, it's just one of them kind of dumb comedies, lowbrow. Fair enough. Didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I, I would I would read it myself, but... Even if it's just like say from a, uh, even if it's it's not, it sounds like it's a little bit of a commentary on the overall quality of the film, but it's definitely not going to be uh, up there as like his best ones or his best work. No, you know I'm not going to be arguing for green status or anything on behalf of it. No, <laughs> fair enough. That one's gone. Uh, 1997. We're into now, so this is the one I thought you were going to go to bat for. To be honest. Oh yeah. I am. <laughs> okay. So I'll tell you what, we'll we'll do the fifth element. Um Luke Besson's best film, maybe. Yeah. Nikita's great. I'm not a Leon fan. I quite like Leon. It's definitely better than Valerian anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've lost it with Besson over the years. So, um controversial that figure. One? Years, it was Valerian, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this one, kind of a, an odd film. Uh, it, he's a, playing a futuristic taxi driver, and he basically has to save this girl who is sort of the the magic MacGuffin of the film, which is Mila Jovovich, um, being hunted down by Gary Oldman, and Chris Tucker's in it screaming his head off throughout the whole film. We've also got Luke Perry and Ian Holm. Kind of, and somebody described it to me as being it's a film where everybody in the film is convinced they're the main character. <laughs> I think that's yeah. kind of a brilliant summation of it because everybody's just out there, and it's, I think it's kind of really good at what it does. But yeah, like I say, I thought you were you were going to go to go go to bat for it, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of sneakily a little bit of a Star Wars thing as well. Oh, um, look, you're trying to get me with that. <laughs> well, Ian Holm is like Obi Wan, 
and then you know he's got um kind of he's luke skywalker-esque well i suppose he's more hand solo i suppose um, yeah in uh in the uh, corbin dallas but then it's all about you know the the threat of the like they've got this looming almost death star kind of thing that's you know i'll stop with the star wars but um, yeah it, it is it's like this looming presence which is going to destroy the world and then you've kind of got the darth vader i'm not going to stop with the star wars no, things. No, don't do you've it. kind Just of got going. the darth vader-esque thing of zorg with his stormtroopers which are those um i forget what they're called now the ugly gray big headed yeah I, I don't know what they're called but i i know what, people who want to look at them all you've got to do is just google this film i guess yeah yeah i've it's just escaped my mind but yeah so then he's got this like presence on earth which is well not is it earth i don't know i think <laughs> it is yeah i think he's on his own place in his org i can't remember but uh yeah so it, all of this stuff's going on and it is like a proper space opera and it does feel like an early um sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for um sort of entree into the more modern star wars you know the prequels it's kind of got that hokey cgi-esqueness about it yeah but it's also playing to like the blade runner it's it it's more stylish than it is just kind of feels feels very blade runner i'm glad you mentioned that i'm also glad you didn't stop at the star wars comparisons before pointing out that have we got Chris Tucker to blame for Jar Jar Binks then? Is that where we're going? <laughs> yeah, Chris Chris Tucker is probably the one thing that keeps it from being like a near perfect film for me. Because uh, I love the storyline. I think it's really, really clever. Um, the way that she is this entity that's coming back down to Earth to save um, civilization. And it kind of dates back to centuries before and it's getting passed on through Ian Holmes' character and that those priests that carry this key information. And then she's like this, just this surviving portion of one of the um, aliens that support Earth. And then she's, you know, born out of this like arm or whatever that's left from the wreckage. And then it's like, then they've got to go, and it's just like this really twisty kind of storyline where then they've got to go off to this. Um, or the planet is it, or just on this cruise kind of space cruise ship thing yeah. where they've got to discover these elements, you know, yeah, whatever. It, it's just like a really bizarre, random sort of classic space opera. Um, and I suppose the people like Chris Tucker and those performances in it, it's a bit like Jar Jar, as you say. You kind of you forgive it to a certain extent, but you just kind of wish it wasn't there because you know it'd be better without it. That's that's the only thing with like Tucker and Jar Jar, Jar Jar more so. But I, I think Tucker's doing um, Prince. I think I said that to you before. Yeah. I think he's kind of doing a Prince thing. Yeah, it does give that that impression. Um, and like you say, I sp- it's one of them that in like, I think in an ideal world for me, we would have had four or five more films like this that are these kind of big, kind of grand space operas that are taking a swing and they've got their own ideas and everything, but kind of unfortunate because although you mentioned you have drawn the parallels to star Wars, it isn't star Wars at the same time. No, no. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, its own. Thing, it's very yeah. much its own thing. It's very much its own beast. It's got its own different tones and everything to it. And unfortunately I feel like a lot of anything that kind of fit into the mold of, Oh, it's okay. It's sci-fi space opera thing that we've got to do. Everybody wanted to do Star Wars a little bit too much, whereas I'm glad this one has gone somewhere different with it at least. So yeah, he's too um, like 
best one as a filmmaker who's far too bold to just follow somebody else's lead. Yeah. It's kind of what Lucas was doing back in the day, you know. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, I, I love it. Very yeah. very green on this one, I think, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good. Uh, we'll move on to, well, the other film that actually got made in 1997 anyway, and that's uh, The Jackal. Uh, it's obviously a loose remake of Day of the Jackal. Um, he plays the eponymous Jackal in it, uh, being hunted down by Richard Gere doing the most ridiculous Irish accent <laughs> you've ever heard in your life. And Sidney Poitier is the main FBI agent who feels like he's in a completely different film for the most part. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, I didn't, I didn't really like it, to be honest. It would be pretty red for me. Um, there's some interesting moments in there, specifically the one with Jack Black. Um, people who've seen it or, you know, maybe don't want to seek it out after I've just said it's going to be red, but whatever. Um, but yeah, it's got some interesting moments. It's also got Bruce Willis dressing up in just the most outlandish shit, this side of Hudson Hawk as well. So, yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it, but what are your thoughts on it? It's just a nostalgia fest for me. I watched right. it so many times when I was a kid. Um, if I'm fair, it's not as good on reflection. I kind of look at it as a bit daft now because it's aided by, like as you say, the Richard Gere accent. Just Richard Gere in general is just a bit laughable for the most part. Um, but yeah, I think because I could like vaguely remember it and piece it together in my mind and just experiencing it all over again. I was like, Oh yeah, the Jack Black's bits come in. Um, the bit where he changes the car and blasts it all off. That's all come in. The blonde hairs come in, you know, the big massive gun yeah. is coming, yeah. you know, all these bits, the, the ax in the head. So yeah, I'm just throwing things out for listeners. So, you know, all of these things do happen. <laughs> it's not as, it's not as dull as, um, it, yeah. Cause it's one of them films where it's got a register that is quite dull, but it's got many, many bizarre, weird, wonderful things going on around. It definitely. It. has got very many bizarre moments. I'll give you that. Um, yeah. <laughs> the subway at the end. I it's mean. just, yeah, well, yeah. It's just another one of those where I'm just kind of not entirely sure why they thought it was a good idea to kind of dredge up. But I guess Hollywood do it all the time. You dredge up an old idea that... and try and remake it with their own spin on it. But Is it Forsyth? Who yes. Wrote the... yeah. yeah, I know he distanced himself from it. That's why it's not called The Day of the Jackal. Right, okay. Because he was like, you're, you're not pissing all over this um but yeah i don't it, it I, i'm not gonna fight it out of red to be honest that's fine i'm glad you didn't definitely i might fight you on the next one because i feel like you're gonna say this next one's red as well <laughs> so then i guess before we kind of get to the next one there's uh there's a film that never actually got finished at least um which is 1997's the broadway brawler yeah, um, and this is—it uh, was a Disney film that basically it sounds like Bruce Willis had turned into peak Bruce Willis by this point. So everything that you kind of know about him offset, or sorry, off camera, but on set, his behavior and everything like that was kind of full enforced at this point. He fell out with 
both directors, I think, because one was on it who then fell out with him and they brought on uh, somebody else who I think Willis actually brought on. And then the, I think the production, right. yeah, it, it, basically the whole thing fell apart. The production company, I think, fell apart because obviously it was being distributed by Disney. They're under license. But, um, so basically the whole thing ended up going to court after it, the whole it fell apart and uh, Willis lost in court. They basically got sued by Disney. He lost and as part of it, he agreed to work for them for three more films, which two of which we'll, we'll kind of go on to a little bit. Um, but that's how we end up with Bruce Willis in Armageddon, The Sixth Sense, and then in the early 2000s, he does The Kid as well. So it's kind of, even though it's not a film that ever got made, it's still kind of got this quite big impact on who we see Bruce mm-hmm. Willis as. So thought that would be worth bringing up. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really interesting bit of trivia. Wasn't it like... 30 million or something as well. <laughs> just thrown down the drain. It, yeah, it was a lot of money. Um, yeah. I'll see if I can just quickly. Uh, apparently, before they'd even really got too far into it, uh, more than half of the 28 million of the budget had been spent. <laughs> so, yeah. Good going, Bruce. So the other one then, the other uh, nostalgia fest that you... Mm-hmm. were a big fan of but I had not seen before this and wasn't a fan of it is uh, <laughs> 1998's Mercury Rising yep shall I put my defensive uh, defence uh, forward <laughs> for this film um, yeah no I, I appreciate it's aged quite badly <laughs> um, but I, I think it's a really neat thriller and I think, I think he gets Bruce at a good point where he's kind of, he's well and truly established as like a major action star at this point, but he's still willing to do the kind of action thrillers that have got a little bit more about them in the sense of a bit more of an interesting story. I know, I know it's, it's ridiculous, like the the whole puzzle in the code in the puzzle book yeah. kind of thing. It's a ridiculous premise, but most of these films are. I mean, the next one's about an asteroid, <laughs> going and drilling an asteroid, you know. So, yeah, they, they, they're always a bit silly. But um, he's kind of going for this sort of what you don't see so much in the 90s, the espionage sort of thrillers. It's getting a bit more popular after like the Bond revivals and Mission Impossible and stuff. But this one's got a bit more of that kind of, it's not as great as the 70s, like conspiracy thrillers and all that sort of stuff. But with, with Alec Baldwin, you've got that kind of menacing character at the at the centre of it. And then I think the kid, and I'm not going to call him the kid, I'm going to find out what his name is because that's pretty disrespectful. Um Miko Hughes. I think he's really good. I think he's really good. And I know him from a few things because he's in Pet Cemetery. Right, yeah. He's in uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. He's the kid who says, boys have a penis, girls have a vagina in Kindergarten Cup. <laughs> so he's, he's written a, a load of great stuff. Um, but I thought he was really excellent in a role that I'm sure is like badly dated and... Uh, you know, I'm sure many will 
find offence to it and I'm not defending it on that level. But I think of its time, it's interesting to try and incorporate those elements into just sort of a basic action thriller and try and aspire to have a bit more interest in other avenues that aren't always represented. And I'm sure it's misrepresentative in certain instances as well, but I just thought it was interesting. And yes, it's a massive nostalgia fest for me as well. So I don't know if I put a good defense there, but uh, yeah. You you probably talked it up a little bit for me. Um, just like you said, like you said, I don't think it's aged particularly well. Um, it's depiction of a, a kid with autism isn't great to be fair um as far as i know anyway but i i think it is it's it's kind of what we mentioned a little bit before with um striking distance i think in the fact that you think bruce willis has done this role 40 times by this point but he kind of yeah. hasn't and this is one of those that where he does do that role he does play this sort of uh secret agent he type you know, man with a gun, he'll take on the world type, almost John McClane-esque. Um, and I think he's a little bit even sleepwalking through this at times, but he's still really good in it because he's just really good at doing that role. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you've, you've kind of taught me around a little bit on it. I don't mind if it's, like, red, um, given it's problematic, kind of touching on certain subjects that I'm sure it would be dealt with far more um, gently in in current times, but it would be a yellow for me. I think I could probably talk, I could I could probably accept it being in the yellow. I think it's it's a shame about like you say the the sort of autism side of it. I think because otherwise it it would be one of those. I think you could put on on a Saturday afternoon and just chill out and, and really enjoy yourself with it. Yeah, I think the problem with it with it is the scripts um and the writing sort of attitude towards the autism and it being this and i know they use this term you know um when discussing it you know people who yeah families have suffered it is like a superpower yeah i have heard that term used before but i think the way that this kind of takes it a little bit too literally um is probably problematic but i do think the performance from miko hughes is He's quite effective. It's, so. it's something as well. I think when I watched this, um, it was before I'd seen um, Color of Night, which again, not not slightly different, but that deals with sensitive subjects really badly, probably even worse yeah. than this. And again, yeah. mentioning what I mentioned before with like Shane Black and The Predator is, is another one that kind of deals really badly with with like a kid with autism because basically infers that they've got superpowers because of that. But that was made in 2018, whereas this was mm. made 20 years before that. So not that I'm excusing it, but it does make it a little bit more excusable. Yeah, it's a touchy one to, to discuss. And I'm not coming from it with the point of like authority on it in any way, shape or form. And I always try and park as much of that as I can and just watch it as a film and see what I what my feeling is towards it as a piece of entertainment because that's what it's trying to be and i i appreciate if if you're closer to those subjects you might absolutely reject this film and you know you, that, that's you, your prerogative it but. is easier to do that as well when you consider how attitudes have changed and stuff over the years like you say yeah exactly. it's, it's more of a problem when it happens in a film that came out five years ago as opposed to 25 years ago for example yeah exactly exactly 
So then after that, we move to the first of those ones that I mentioned just a minute ago. It's Armageddon, 1998. Um, obviously, Michael Bay, uh, Ben Affleck, Liv Tyler. Yeah, I guess a lot of people, this has got to be one of the most seen ones that I think people have got on their, their yeah. list again. Um, obviously, the age-old question, why was it easier to get oil drillers and just teach them how to be <laughs> astronauts than teaching astronauts how to drill into an asteroid. But there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like Armageddon. Again, it's another, I've said it a few times now, nostalgia thing. Um, this used to be on, uh, my dad used to curate these like double bill VHS tapes back in the day and he'd tape stuff off uh, whatever channel they were on. And I always remember this. This was on tape nine. And it was Armageddon and Independence Day. That's it's a good, it's a good pretty, pairing, yeah. Pretty good, yeah, pretty good double bill. The best one he had was uh, Jurassic Park and Jaws. That was played that death, tape to death. Um, the, the peak, uh, peak Spielberg for you at a certain age, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I always preferred Independence Day to Armageddon a little bit. Um, but um, I think it's kind of a film of two halves. And I still have that feeling every time I revisit it. I kind of love all the stuff on the on the on Earth, and the whole build up and getting to know all the different characters. Amazing yeah. cast. It's far too good a cast for the kind of trash that the second half becomes. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of the breaking point of Bay. Like I think up to this point, Bad Boys, The Rock. I'm I'm definitely going with Bay. Um, and I think you could split this film in half, and it's the second half of this film where I start going, eh, I'm not so sure anymore. That's, that's when Michael know, this, Bay loses your light. Yeah, this this like, it's really difficult to kind of watch some of the action set pieces on The Rock, um, and then you've got all that sort of real sentimental stuff that does work, you know, does get me every time that um, Aerosmith starts kicking in as Bruce and uh, uh, what's his name? Ben Affleck in their yeah. moment, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's much to add to Armageddon. I, I'd yellow it probably. I don't think it quite. It's green for me. That's fair. I mean, I I'm not a, so I'm not a big fan. I don't mm. think I'm that big a fan of Michael Bay in general. Mm. Um, the bloody Aerosmith song seems to follow me around. Like yeah, it was <laughs> the last song we had at our high school prom as well oh god it's just like yeah so i'm not a fan but equally like personal preference aside i you can't i don't think you can put it lower than a yellow i don't think it is red really um so we'll we'll put that in there Mm -hmm. um i'm easy with that so yeah but that leaves us with the only other one from 1998, which is The Siege. Um, this is a sort of a bit of an odd film, really. It's uh, it's Denzel reteaming with Ed Zwick after uh, Glory. And it's definitely more of a, a, a Denzel film and also a kind of Annette Benning film as well. Bruce Willis comes in as this army general kind of throwing its weight around Mm-hmm. And the whole film is just kind of a, a really kind of bizarre, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of remnant of history. Yeah. And that it comes out yeah. in 1998. So it's like right at the tail end of the 
of the uh, of the nineties, and it's basically all about terrorist attacks on New York City. Which obviously, three years later, you're just not making this film. No way mm-hmm. about it. Um, especially because it's like terrorist attacks by people from the Middle East as well, and it's all about this holy crusade, and it's all about how the Americans react, and it's just kind of. That part of it ages really weirdly because it's very different to what actually happens in real life, um, for better yeah. and for worse. Because this film, before September 11th, took a lot of criticism because you know certain chapters of society were like, "This is absolutely shocking!" Like you know the way that you're handling certain characters in this yeah. um, film, and. Um, Edswick's response to it after the events was like, well, this was the most rented film right. after September yeah. 11th. And you're, you're like, okay, yeah. So everybody was trying to get to terms with the tragedy that had happened. But we sure as shit weren't dealing with it the way that you're suggesting here, mate. You know, which it's an interesting idea, but it's also pretty ridiculous. I mean, I... I I was reviewing all of these on Letterbox, and I just called this Die Hard with an agenda. <laughs> I thought it was quite good. <laughs> and, um, like, it's just like, what, what is going on here? Like, the, I, I get, you know, martial law is a, a thing and state of emergency and bringing the army in, but the way it's handled is just so ridiculous. And, like, the ending, um, when I guess we're trying not to spoil endings for films if people want to watch it. Yeah. So I'll be be vague about it but the idea that you know denzel can come in and just give one of his speeches and then just solve this massive geopolitical issue that's going on across not just new york city but you know the whole world would be involved by this point yeah and denzel washington can just have a chat to a couple of army sergeants or lieutenants whatever in a bunker and just solve the whole thing it's oh, yeah whatever. It, that, that is easily the bit that has aged the worst doesn't it because i think there are it's some just... bits that feel almost prescient a little bit for yeah. lack of a better word i guess but but yeah that that bit is uh i think that's my difference between not to go back over the same point but something like mercury rising which does that doesn't age well in certain respects but it doesn't have about these out and out things where you're just like, oh, you have just completely lost the plot here. It tries to stay quite not grounded, but within its own, own lane. It's just a simple, straightforward tale. And it starts as a middle, as an end. It has a few characters in there that you go, mm, not so sure you get away with that anymore. But it doesn't have this overarching message of like, oh, you're just in absolute fantasy land here. And yeah, there's a good cast in there and they're all doing decent work. Willis is doing good work. Denzel's doing decent work. But it's it's just like the whole overarching point of the movie itself just seems really misguided. Yeah. I thought it was bad. Yeah, really bad. So with that, I feel like you're kind of leaning a little bit more towards the red on this one then. It would be for me, yeah. Um, just didn't like it at all. I don't know. I'm struggling a little bit because... I guess it's sheer force of will of Denzel as well, because I always love that guy. And I think he's he's still pretty good in this. Willis is the the bad guy, you know, the out-and-out out asshole that he, like I say, we've mentioned before, he rarely plays, but he does sort of show up in every now and then. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'm never going to watch it again. I, wouldn't I don't recommend like, it like, again, I'm not going to... I wouldn't, you know... 
it's not a, a dark red for me. It's just that yeah. certain aspects of it really rubbed me up the wrong way. But I think in general, yeah, it's a solid cast. They're all doing good work. Yeah, you know, if if it's yellow, I'm, amber, I'm fine with that. I think I think you've you've won me over. We'll go with red. <laughs> Uh, and also it gives me a good way to link into the next one because speaking of red <laughs> a film I, I couldn't actually get hold of myself thankfully I believe uh, we've got Breakfast of Champions it's a, it's an adaptation of the Kurt Vonnegut novel um, and yeah I, I, I understand Vonnegut was pretty keen to distance himself from it as was literally everybody involved i believe yeah i'm not probably i did watch this film but i'm probably again not the great best commentator on it because i haven't read any vonnegut i've tried a couple um slaughterhouse five and i don't know yeah i can't remember probably probably Um, yes because they are the they are the two that kind of get molten and thrown around i have read uh slaughterhouse five myself um yeah i'm i'm probably not the best person to commentate on this sort of stuff because i'm i've not really read vonnegut's work um i have picked up a couple of his novels and just sort of they're not i don't know maybe they're just not my kind of yeah storytelling um i've had people tell me that he's one of one of the true greats kind of thing but i think it's hard to say because he was not a fan of it and there's like a clip of him somewhere saying that it was a disaster or something like that this film um so obviously he doesn't feel it's a good representation of his work but as we know with people like um stephen king <laughs> it doesn't always mean that the film's bad no that's true um but for me in this instance it was um it's an amazing cast like people that turn up nick nolte albert finney um but they're all just like yeah it, bruce willis is probably the best representation of it in the sense of like, it's just a character you just cannot get into in any shape or form. It's just like, he's, he's like suicidal. Um, and it's like kind of done with this sort of arch bent humor at times. And then Albert Finney turns up and does some, you know, like rambling kind of performance. And it's just, I just could not get into it at all. And, I, you know, this is the one where it was a bomb and I can absolutely see why it was a bomb. You know, things like Billy Bathgate and Bonfire of the Vanities, there's things in them. I'm like, oh, it still feels like a proper film. This right, one yeah. just feels like a disaster from the off. So, yeah, it's a strong red, <laughs> I would say. That's fair. I like I say, I've only read uh, Slaughterhouse-Five of, uh, of Vonnegut's work and... I, I don't think it's the most accessible out there of like novels. I think it, it, if you persevere with it, it does get there eventually. I can only talk to that one. I haven't read uh, Breakfast of Champions. So yes, but we'll stick that one in pretty, pretty dark red anyway. <laughs> um, speaking of which, I don't think this was the, um, so we've got two films left and I don't think this one was the next one. But it's definitely not the one I'm going to go out on. So uh, <laughs> while we're talking still pretty dark red, I'll bring up Story of Us. Uh, it's him and Michelle Pfeiffer uh, in a Rob Reiner film, basically about like this sort of collage almost of this married couple's life together. 
um, some uh, supporting roles in there for like Rita Wilson um, and Paul Reiser and Rob Reiner himself shows up. But it was just just such a duffer. You know what I mean? It, it was just not like enjoyable. Um, the entire time I was sitting there going, because it's kind of like about the marriage, it kind of falls apart because they spend like 50% of the film arguing as well, which yeah. I, it just really gives you an appreciation of how good like marriage story is. And right. Blue Valentine and films like that uh, because yeah. they're done even even in the scenes where like obviously marriage story there's a lot of arguments and stuff in there as well but it's just so much better than this this was dross interestingly I didn't realise this was Rob Reiner so he didn't recover from North <laughs> no no not really um, I don't think he does because he's got form with this kind of stuff as well because it's like when Harry met Sally which I'm not like it's fine but again it's not really fine because of Rob Reiner either that's like Nora Ephron isn't it yes right yeah, yeah so yeah I, I didn't realize I I lumped this in with all the the Disney stuff like the kid is this one of those so uh, this for, wasn't yeah. one of those no. three um right. it it's a universal film and obviously uh Castle Rock the production company which is Reiner's production company yeah uh, you'll be interested to know that one of the writers on this, though, uh, one of the other previous films that he'd written was North. So. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, for anybody listening, I didn't watch this one, and uh, you've not sold it to me, Aaron. No, I don't so. think I'm selling it to anyone, trust me. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go out on a higher note, I think, for me anyway. Uh, so the last film, which is, again, we mentioned it before because it's, one of the other films in that Disney uh, lawsuit that came out, and it's The Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan and obviously Haley Joel Osment are the the, uh, the director and the other star in it as well. Tony Collette, obviously, she she shows up as the mom. Yep. So my story behind this is that I didn't see it when it came out. Obviously, it was huge when it came out. It was everywhere. Um, I didn't see it because before I got around the chance to seeing it. Someone told me the ending, which I'm graciously not going to do on the podcast, I think. Yeah. I'll draw the line there. We'll, we'll try not to spoil it, although I'm sure everybody knows. But, uh, yeah, somebody told me the ending. And after that, I was like, well, I know the ending now. What's the point in watching it? And mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised when I actually did get around to watching it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was um, just just kind of well plotted and I think it does work pretty well someone has described the film as being a bit like a magic trick to me mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And, and there's a bit in the film where he explains how magic tricks work and stuff like that quite cleverly done it's something that Nolan then does with the prestige as well similar sort of thing with that um, and so yeah I, I really liked it what are your thoughts I'm a little bit worried about this now no, no, I think for the purposes of this and in fairness to the film, I mean, every film you kind of take differently. Some get better over time. 12 Monkeys is a good example. That, on first watch, you come away and go, hmm, you know, I'm not sure, you know, that I need to piece it all together. I feel like that's great, but I don't know. Whereas The Sixth Sense is a, 
absolutely a first time experience. It's fairly straightforwardly laid out for you. Um, it's clear in its big beats. So you've got that bit at the start with Donnie Wahlberg. Yeah. And it's like, pay attention to this. This is a major sequence. You know, watch this, pay attention, look at what's happening. And then it drops you back into present day. And then the film cleverly works you away from that incident, yeah. which was so prominent in your mind at the beginning, but you then get wrapped up in the everything else. cleverness of the everything else. And then you get the ending and you go, oh, shit. Yeah, okay. I get it. It all work. And again, it's a bit like the 12 monkeys in the sense that, you know, it doesn't have that circular kind of reference, but it's like, oh, okay. Yes. Everything that's happened in this film, the little nods towards it completely makes sense. And as a cohesive whole, I think it's really good. I think it's a lesser kind of Nolan-esque thing in the sense of like the prestige or something like that, which I think Nolan is, is similar in the sense of once you've seen the film, once you've worked it out, Fincher as well as another one. Um, with Seven, for example, once you know the ending, you're like, oh, shit, okay. Yeah. You'll never, ever, ever get that moment back again of that first revelation. But you can still appreciate it on repeat viewings in the sense of I can keep an eye out for the yeah. little nods and that magic trick unfolding. And it does wear thin. I've watched it two, three, four times, never too many times because it's worn thin that quickly on me it's not like you know watching godfather 2 or something mm -hmm. just because i can just go back and i can just appreciate that sequence and every single time i watch it i'll get something new from it and forever for the rest of my life that'll be the case yeah six sense is not one of those kind of films it will have a law of diminishing returns but in fairness to it as you know just a explosion at the time i think it's effective i think it's by far Shyamalan's best film. That's. I think. I'm glad you said that because I also think that. I know a lot of people go to bat for like uh, signs. I'm a fan of signs as well. Yeah. But I, think, I think this is. I think this is probably better. I know I, I flip between the two, but I think this is certainly got a better cohesive lead to its finale. Yeah, and uh, I know a lot of people like Unbreakable as well. So I think it's between this and Unbreakable. I'd probably lean this. Um, and, and I want to mention as well, I don't think this is as good as a film as The Prestige. No, there is no. there is an element to it that like when you see a magic trick um, and then you find, you sort of go, okay, I know what the, the prestige is effectively, the reveal at the end. And someone shows it again. You do sit there and you go, right, I'm going to figure it out this time. I'm going to see how you did it. And then, and obviously it doesn't quite work with the films in the in the same way. But you do kind of, particularly with the Nolan film, you sit there and you can get swept up along with it again every single time. Yeah. And then when he flips it at the end, you go, okay, still didn't still didn't really see that coming necessarily. I still think that's a... Whereas this one, you are sitting there going, I'm going to pick this apart because the, the build-up to it isn't quite as good. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, I think, I, I think I'd have it green. And Nolan's just like a master of the set piece yes. as well. Yeah. So it, it, on a just filmmaking level, I don't think Shyamalan really matches him. But yeah, this is the one. And it's a shame, I guess it's a shame for him that it's his his first major breakout film. It's not his first film, but it's his 
and it's the one that sets the tone for everything that comes afterwards. And he might have sort of pulled it back a little bit. I know there's some positive uh, responses to knock at the cabin and old, which I didn't like at all, but some people did. Um, so he's he's kind of, he seems to have gone into that cult stage now. But he definitely, when he arrived with this, I think everybody thought this is what we're going to get from him. A bit like Nolan has pretty much done throughout, sometimes lesser, but, you know, generally it's an experience, every one of his films, whereas Shyamalan's just dropped away a little bit over each each recurring sort of theme that he's revisited with his films and always the twist and all that kind of stuff. So this is definitely like the best you're going to get from it, I think. And it's a good Bruce Willis turn as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, he, he gives a bit more of a low key performance for the most part, which is which is a nice turn for him. So yeah, I think it's decent. Green, yeah, I'd probably say it's a green to be fair. Cool. So that's all the films we've we've gone through there. And so overall, I'll just run through the list. These are not in exactly the right order, but uh, you have to forgive me. So greens, we've got Die Hard Two, Last Boy Scout, Pulp Fiction. Die Hard 3, 12 Monkeys, Fifth Element, and Sixth Sense. Uh, in the Ambers, we've got Death Becomes Her, Mortal Thoughts, Striking Distance, Look Who's Talking 2, Vampire of the Vanities, Hudson Hawk, Mercury Rising, and Armageddon. And in red, we've got The Siege, Last Man Standing, Beavis and Butthead, Do America, Nobody's Fool, Billy Bathgate, North, Colour of Night, The Jackal, Breakfast of Champions, and The Story of Us. Which that last bit feels quite long. Feels like we had to sit through some crap for this, but there you go. There was a lot of reds, but I think we've been probably deliberately harsher on some just to rule them out. For sure, I think there's yeah. some light reds in there. To be fair, but um, yeah, I think that's that's a fair way we've landed on those. So that does leave us then with seven in the green category that we now need need to decide who we're going to put as the the Mount Rushmore of Bruce Willis, 1990s films. Okay, let's go. So, I mean, I feel like we can start off with Pulp Fiction. Yes. Pretty solidly on there. Yes, 100%. Um, so, move that one. I think probably his best performance as well in all of this, if I'm honest. Yeah. That's Which is very much he has to do. And obviously, definitely the best film, I think. Um, so yeah, that's fair. I think probably after going through it all and sort of relaying everything with you, I could pretty strongly agree that Twelve Monkeys should be on there. Yeah, so that would be my second pick. We're, we're we're doing well so far then. <laughs> yeah. Now I think it gets a little bit more interesting. Yeah. Do we? So we've got Die Hard Two and Die Hard Three. Do we have? I feel like we have to have a John McClane on there just to represent that entire side of... Should we just go Loaded Weapon 1? Just, uh, <laughs> just to fuck with people. <laughs> um, or, or like, I don't know, Striking Distance or anything else. But yeah, um, which one... I'm willing to concede. I'll give you, I'll give you one reason why. Is that Die Hard with a Vengeance is the one with McTiernan. Okay. And... If we went two years prior, Die Hard would unquestionably be in here. Yeah, absolutely. And Die Hard 2, as much as I love it and prefer it and would watch it 
nine times out of ten over dialogue with a vengeance it is the odd one out of that early trilogy and it is the one that's most derivative of the original rather than trying to push things forward even though the third one was based on a different script yeah i was gonna say it's interesting because i feel like we're definitely being a little bit too nice here because i was gonna say i could understand why we would put two on there because it's the closest we're going to get to Die Hard 1, which is obviously the best of all five films. That are, you know what I mean? So, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would I would say Die Hard 2, but I think... Let's go with most, two. Are we? Yeah. Are we? we yeah. Sorry. It will be different. Because <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance would be on most people. So we we, need, we need it on there for, for John McClane, but secretly I'm putting it on there for Al Powell. Yeah. And the... Um, brilliant fax ability to pick up yeah. um <laughs> the uh what is it fingerprint technology it, yeah. <laughs> fantastic yeah. um so that leaves us then so that probably does kind of rule out we're not having three on there and i feel like it probably rules out last boy scout as well in terms of the big bruce action set piece film so what have we got left? We've got Last Boy Scout. That leaves us Dark. with either Fifth Element or Sixth Sense. Oh. Now, now it's getting tough. Oh, you're killing me. This is the crux because of like nearly two hours of podcast. Again, I know for the purpose of um, capturing what's his career in the 90s, which is this eclectic kind of... The kaleidoscope yeah. of yeah of, of different genres the sixth sense is the answer isn't it and we've already got we've already got the better sci-fi film in there in 12 monkeys kind of where i was I know, leaning to be honest i notice i keep talking out my pick here but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you did give me die hard too so yeah it's just like you say if you were kind of wanted a a rushmore like you say that's got all four faces of of Bruce throughout the night is um, you've got the, the big action hero. You've got the, quite frankly, the best film he made in the night is you've got the, mm-hmm. the sci-fi ones that he does, which is like, I, say, I probably prefer 12 monkeys over, over uh, fifth element there. Yeah. And then you've also got something that he doesn't do quite as much. Um, but is equally sort of emblematic of, who he was in the night is and I guess roles that he would pick up. Now I know we've mentioned a few times that he occasionally plays villains in there, but I just don't think any of the, the films that are he's in are strong enough to, to get yeah. up there with that. So for me, those would be Pulp Fiction, 12 Monkeys, they are two and six cents would be the, the four. I think then the nice thing about that as well is it spans the decade. We've gone from his very first one to, Pretty much the let's last just, one. Let's just pretend seconds. we did that on purpose. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, we got one from 90, one from 94, 96, 99. Brilliant. Like we planned it. Perfect. So, yes. So, yeah, but, that, um, that kind of sums it up. I don't know if you've got any final thoughts. No, I was just going to say, like, obviously the point of this was just to sort of honour Bruce Willis. Um I didn't say anything at the start, but yeah, I mean, he's one of those actors that's just synonymous with like my childhood and my formative years with film, you know, whether it be Die Hard or Sixth Sense or, you know, he was always around um, all those VHS tapes that my dad had video recorded 
he was a massive fan and that kind of formed my love for film and he was always like present throughout that so yeah um you know wish him the best of health with everything he's going through at the moment you know really sad um but he's definitely left a, a great legacy and it's not just those four films that we've we've picked out as the um the Mount Rushmore of sorts there's a ton of great stuff in there um and even the bad stuff even the stuff that we ruled out as red he's rarely poor in any of them um so yeah great great actor and uh, really enjoyed it I mean yeah and it's not to mention as well that he has also got like he's almost got like a second career in the next decade as well that we haven't even yeah. touched on basically yeah yeah uh, yeah so he's almost got like another uh, career before as well in like the 1980s with like the moonlighting TV run coming through and things like Miami Vice and then obviously the explosion of Die Hard so yeah I mean he turned his hand to so many different things um and and the 2000s as well, once, um, as you say, there's a plenty of great stuff in there as well. Um, yeah, he's just he's just been a great actor. Yeah, definitely one of the greats, I think. Um, yeah, so that kind of sums up everything, I think, on on Bruce. Um, thanks for thanks for coming on. No worries. Um, where where's best for people to to find you? Oh, uh, I'm pretty rubbish with social media, but I'm on Letterboxd as Front Row Review. Um, so you find plenty of reviews on there. Uh, some of them Bruce Willis themed ones recently. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll make sure to uh, to stick the link in the in the notes as well. Um, you, I think mate. this has probably given us an idea as well for some perhaps future podcast episodes that we'll be looking at a very similar sort of thing in down the line. So. Uh, Definitely, yeah. Yeah. So, like I say, thanks for coming on. Um, for Cheers, everybody Aaron. else, um, you can catch me. I'm on Twitter at AaronLewis33. My letterboxed and my Instagram, both Last Jedi on the left. Um, but uh, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for everyone for listening. Cheers.